Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Anne Gray. Great to have you here. Thank you, Marion. I did have some really great, a really great intro then, but then I realised I hadn't pressed record, so I'm not going to repeat it because I'll never be able to remember <laughs> what I actually said. But Anne, you're one of my colleagues on Governing Council, and I'm really pleased that you've joined me on the podcast today. For those who don't know you, could you introduce yourself? Right. So I am uh, based in Los Angeles, California actually a suburb of Los Angeles called Pasadena, which you might know from the fabulous Rose Parade every year. And uh, I went to school at UCLA. I have a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics and a master's of architecture. I began my career in architecture and realized pretty quickly that I was only a B-plus designer, but that I was a great manager and I really enjoyed the big picture. So as quick as I could, I shifted over to the owner's side and I've been in uh, basically the, the property business on the owner's side for most of my adult life. So that sounds incredibly glamorous being over in Los Angeles <laughs> as I sit here on a Friday night in Leighton Buzzard, right in the middle of the UK. It's it's near Aylesbury, which is the furthest part, the furthest point from the sea anywhere in in the UK. And I call it Middle Earth. Uh, (laughs) That's what it feels like sometimes. Um, But it sounds very glamorous um, uh, over there. Oh, it is. uh, Completely. (laughs) And, (laughs) but I I remember you um, posting... I think I was, I can't remember if I followed you on Instagram or we connected, I can't remember. And are you near where there were like, there were fires? Oh yeah. The town that I live in is actually tucked up against the foothills of the Angeles National Forest. And when that starts to burn, it's really hard to stop. And so we, um, California, we actually have, um, we don't have a lot of weather, but we do have what we call fire season. And it's the fire season because of climate change is getting longer and longer every year. So in the wintertime, when we get rains, everything becomes lush and green and then dries out quickly. And then, you know, toward the end of summer and into the fall, everything just burns. And so it's kind of a a cycle of um, growth and destruction every year that's getting more and more dramatic. And and this year was actually pretty harrowing. Um, You know, I live in a more urban area, so we aren't directly affected other than the air quality is awful. And it's it's really sad to see the the outcome of of all that burning woodlands. I was talking to another of our governing council members, uh, Kevin Brogan, who's in Australia, and he was actually quite close to some of the fires that they had over over there recently. And you know, here in the UK, in the summer, we might have a few barbecues go off and sets, you know, the moors <laughs> yeah. on fire, but, you know, really in terms of big ecological disasters, things like that, we just have absolutely no idea of, yeah. of what it's like to, to live next to something like that. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of give you an example of what the air was like, I live about three miles from the fire that happened last year. And um, the closest one to me was three miles, let's say. And there was so much ash in the air that I actually had a plant just completely die from suffocation. Um, the 
the little particulates just land on everything and, and it can start to look like a, a little layer of snow. That's amazing. And I, I'm yeah, also thinking... hard to imagine. Then, I'm also thinking of, you know, actually the the damage to health because if a plant yes. doesn't die, then good, you know, right. sorry, Anne, but goodness yeah, knows what happens. I know. <laughs> this is, this is what I'm telling you. It's, it's glamour all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it is true on clear days there is absolutely nothing prettier than uh, looking out all my windows and seeing you know palm trees and blue skies and and you know rugged mountainside it's absolutely lovely and I guess when I talk to other people you know like like Kevin in Australia and and yourself you know I work in a you know quite a small sector really um you know work in the residential sector um, of surveying in the UK and it's very easy to become blinkered as to what's going on in our own little world our own little middle earth if you like mm-hmm. and not really have an appreciation for the whole global view of what is going on other than a David Attenborough type program that might tell me you know about what's going on and when it comes to the built environment I come across a lot of surveyors who don't really have any kind of uh, context, you know, of why it's so important to understand what is going on globally in terms of the, the fires, the effect, you know, thing, ecological things, but also then sort of innovation, you know, valuation, impact on the economy, markets, all of those things then start to affect and actually do come down to the surveyor in their own little world in, in Leighton Buzzard. Well, but the gap no, is huge, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And it's one of the things I love most about being an, an RICS professional is just exposure to all of that information. Being able to put my own small projects into some kind of global context, I think, makes me better at my job. And besides giving me access to all the thought leadership that the organization provides and and a, a network of professionals that, that I can work with, I've I've done work in Toronto. I, one of my one of my previous jobs um, before starting my own business was as the um, I was in charge of development at um, Paramount Pictures. And are you so, telling me you don't have a glamorous life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So so here's a here's a funny surveyor task. There was a, a movie called. Um, it was with Kevin Costner. And he was playing a cop up in San Francisco. And one of the scenes was a shootout in a water bottling plant. And so all the water had to gush all over the place. And me, as in charge of facilities, had to have somebody calculate the bearing capacity of the floor of the stage to make sure that if it was two feet deep in water, that it would withstand the loads. (laughs) (laughs) And no harm was done to any Kevin Costners in the making of this film because you did your your calculation. That's right. That's right. And another funny task that we had to do was when Arsenio Hall had his talk show, he was so fabulously popular at the time that we had to use our biggest stage and turn it. It was a, it was actually a filming stage that was made for those old water movies. So it had it had tanks in there for people to go diving and swimming and boat scenes and all that kind of stuff. So we converted it to a television audience format. And so, and then he had his little talk show sofa set up. But when you were 
sitting on the sofa setup when you were looking out to the audience, unfortunately, the way the risers worked, you could actually look up women's dresses. (laughs) So so we had to quickly, uh, before they started shooting, figure out a way to to shield all of the, the ladies' panties. So anyway, you know, surveying, it's all over the place. <laughs> it certainly is. How did you, um, I mean, you know, you sort of talked about being an architect, but as you were sort of growing up, how did you know that you wanted to work in the built environment in some way, shape or form? Was that a, a natural step for you? Uh, I mean, we, you know, we talk about there not being many women in the STEM, uh, you know, sort of areas, you know, let alone sort of being surveyors. Was that what were the influences on you as you were younger, yeah. and how you then got into it? You know, honestly, I, I I look back on it now, and I think it was kind of inevitable. When I was a kid, my father my father taught linguistics university, and he would take sabbaticals, and we'd travel around the world and live in different places. And um, we actually lived in Greenwich for a year outside of London. We lived in a little village outside of Athens, and every um, you know, and then a lot of traveling in between. And he would always take us to see at the time it was torture but every single freaking cathedral that there was out there we had to romp <laughs> through and look at why why is this cathedral different than that cathedral <laughs> you know and we'd go see Stonehenge and you know we'd go to the Colosseum and so it was you know it was the built environment was was really interesting to him and and he made it interesting for us and and then when we were at, at home you know after dinner he would sit in his chair with a you know, a little glass of wine and start sketching ideas for his perfect house. So he would pay my brother and I, we lived in an area that was being, it was, it was kind of on the outskirts of town. So it was being developed. So new houses were being built and we were, he and my brothers were remodeling our house always. So he would pay my brother and I, we'd take empty paint buckets and we'd go picking the nails out of the dirt that the contractors would leave behind. So um, <laughs> so we'd get free <laughs> nails for our house. I mean, it was just crazy stuff. But honestly, I think back on it. And and then he, he loved to go walking through half-built houses and he'd say, and look, here's the plumbing. So this is going to be the kitchen and, you know, and this is going to be the bathroom. And, you know, so I had a very early on a sense of what a deconstructed house was like, what floor plans mm. were, drawing perspective, you know, I mean, just the whole... Honestly, if I hadn't gone into a property profession, it would have been freakish. Mm. And, and, you know, understanding how a building is put together, you know, right. having that having that hands-on experience of yeah. really understanding, you know, what a half-built house looks like and what it'll need to take, you know, to, to finish off is, yeah. is really important. And I come across a lot of surveyors who don't have that experience or exposure. And it's really hard, particularly now for students, you know, to get shadowing or mentoring or any kind of experience, but also surveyors who, you know, there's a lot of surveyors who can't afford their own home. You know, we think that they work in property, therefore they must be experts in property and have bagged a bargain of a, of a house. But it's not like that. I mean, it's not particularly not like that in the, in the UK. And so having that, that sort of real hands-on experience, that real tangible experience, something that I think we need to be mindful of going forward, particularly for newer entrants into the into the industry. Tell me about what it's like, or what the, what the RICS is like and what it means over in the States. Because we, in the UK, we've got the largest chunk of the membership and there's all this talk of being global and, and what that means. And some 
you know, it will be very relevant in the work that they do and their interactions. And for others, you know, like I said, the, the gap between what actually goes on at the top, if you like, or globally and what happens to somebody in Margate on a Tuesday as they do their inspections <laughs> can, can feel really, really huge. You know, but tell me what, it, what it's like. How does the RICS operate in the States? Yeah, so in the United States, all of the property professions are basically regulated by the government. So RICS doesn't have a regulatory function here. And I know this is anathema to many people, but it actually functions a lot more like a membership organization, although it's it's kind of on steroids, let's say. The bar to admission is very high, the respect is very high, but it's not well known. So part of our work as you know, the people that are um, big fans of RICS in the United States and that would like to see it more prevalent as a as a professional organization is to work to get government and private um, employers to acknowledge RICS as a valuable recognized credential. And we've been somewhat successful in that. The real estate group of the State Department that does all the embassies and that kind of thing um, recognizes RICS credentials. The General Services Administration, which is kind of like facilities for the federal government, recognizes it. Um, A lot of the big banks for appraisal work will put RCS on their, you know, accepted capabilities list. So like Citibank and Wells Fargo and and those will acknowledge RCS as a relevant credential. So in the United States, that's our goal because I don't think we're ever going to sort of, you know, claw it back from the government in terms of regulation because it's it's considered a consumer protection, let's say, and the government takes those things very seriously. But um, it is important, let's say, more in the in private industry and, you know, and in um, just obtaining more workforce surveyors through the credential. Hmm. So you're part of the governing council. How did you get involved in sort of... Um, What's the word? Like sort of, we have sort of regional boards, you know, the world's boards, et cetera. Did you get involved in 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 those aspects over in the States? Have you always sort of been an active uh, member? I became active in, I think it would be like 2009, 2010. And um, I was invited to help organize a series of panel discussions that was a partnership with the RICS and the American Institute of Architects. And so I was kind of pulled in through the architecture channel. And so I, I helped with that. And I, you know, got to be friends with a bunch of surveyors. And, and they're kind of like, you know, we're great. You should do this. Come and <laughs> join our gang. <laughs> yeah, join our gang. So, you know, I hung out for a while. But, uh, you know, obviously I had to, um, I didn't go through the traditional, you know, ABC track. So I had to, you know, create my case and, you know, so like a, my... a professional experience route. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that was my professional experience route. But, you know, of course, I'd been by that time, I'm very senior in the profession. So, it, you know, it wasn't hard for me, but it was mm-hmm. a lot of work. And I recognized that it was a high bar. And I immediately became involved in the Southern California chapter. I chaired the chapter for a while. And then I kind of worked my way up as country board, um, America's you know, regional board and I'm on governing council now. So it was kind of a logical path. Hmm. And your, your business now, do you work for yourself? I work for myself, right? I'm, um, I'm actually a sole proprietor. I have no employees. So my work is so varied that I actually 
create teams depending on what the assignment is. So it's always a, you know, every project is a team situation, I think, for most surveyors. But it's just, you know, I have such a range of of things that I do that it, it works better that way. And and I guess then being part of a wider network has then helped. Oh, absolutely. Um, those yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned governing council. What made you want to, I mean, you said that was like a natural next step. And I that resonates uh, with me in terms of how I then thought, well, okay, not that I thought how hard could it be, but I just <laughs> thought, you know, you know, it's the next thing if I can do, because I was involved in, a, you know, you call them chapters, we call them regional boards. I was involved in a regional board, you know, let's have a go for the interview. Let's see what it's like and sort of just keep pushing yourself self forward. So that's mm-hmm. it really resonates with me. But what made you want to do it? So what was your experience like? Because you've been on the board for a couple of years now. Is this your sort of second term? Yeah, it's my, yeah, it's my second term. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a really good question. I I felt like I could be useful. I became involved in a, you know, a variety of different kind of working groups that were sort of looking at governance and, you know, kind of, and I, and I saw an organization that was a bit in flux and I genuinely respected everyone that I had met on staff. And I am a complete fan of the RICS mission globally. I really believe in what it brings to the world quite strongly. So I, I don't know, I felt I could be useful. And I wanted to make myself useful. Uh, the other thing about the United States, and, and I'm not sure how this parallels in your country, but there isn't an organization that has such a broad range of professions contained within it. Mm-hmm. Um, or let's say you guys call it a you know a profession that has sort of different disciplines. But here, like architects kind of have their group and then the appraisers have their group and then the brokers have their group. And, you know, it's like nobody sort of, gets together and shares thoughts and ideas. And, and that's really where my strength as a professional is. I, I know something about what everybody does and I can bring that to bear on behalf of what my clients are. And I would certainly never put myself in a position where I was doing work I wasn't qualified to do. But in terms of giving them professional advice on how to deploy their, their real estate assets, I can say, oh, you need an appraiser or, you know, you need a, you need a, a surveyor. You need a, you know, I can tell them, can, I can advise them because I work with all of these people through RICS. Mm. And and you're right. You know, there's, I mean, I, I call them flavors, flavors of surveyor. There are, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are lots of globally, there are lots and lots of different types. And on the one hand, that can be very empowering if all of that thought leadership is then pulled together. And if you think everybody could get their heads together, the good that can be done. But at the same time, that makes it massively complex. And RICS is a massively complex organization globally, you know, and how you might communicate in one country could be very different in another. Thinking about, you know, the governments that and the different customs and all sorts of things that... that well, and just, I on. mean, the word surveyor in the United States, that's a guy with a transit that measures roads, you know. So <laughs> in, in this country, it's you're actually much smarter just to call it RICS and, and you know, and don't explain what it stands for because people just get very confused. Mm. Yeah, I was actually involved in a, a litigation on a piece of property that involved dirt movement. And <laughs> and it, it was the funniest thing in the world because the other side was claiming that I was misrepresenting myself as a civil engineer because I was a member of 
the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. I was like, no, I, I never said I was an engineer, you know, but that's what it means here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as we record this now, the RICS has opened up the consultation for their Defining the Future review. And, you know, anybody who's listening, you know, there's probably a few days left to go and contribute. What would you say to people who are listening about about the review and um, and what's been going on? Yeah, I'm super excited about it. In my period of time being involved with RICS, even before I came onto Governing Council, the RICS commissioned what they call the Futures Report, and that was in 2015. And it really kind of measured all related measurable things in the world in terms of future trends. You know, where's education going? Where are natural resources going? What's labor looking for? Where's population movement? What about climate change? You know, all of, uh, you know, what about political movements? I mean, how all of those things come together to define a future and how will that affect the property professions? And what does that imply for RICS as its own future and service to those professions. And a huge part of that was a digital future, obviously. So I consider this defining the future moment is actually a natural outgrowth of this looking into the future and looking at a, at a, a global world that's highly digitized and making sure that RICS stays relevant for its professionals. And what's really important about that is getting feedback from the professional membership on what does their life look like and where do they see it going professionally in the next few years. This isn't the future like the next hundred years. It's it's the future like in the next, say, five to 10 years, where should RICS be to serve you better in your work? And so it's, yeah, RICS.org, it's right there. And I think this defining the future consultation with the professionals is really exciting. And it's a, it's a natural outgrowth of where we've been going. Yeah, I think it's a it's a brilliant opportunity for surveyors to say whatever they've wanted to say. Right, to... right. Well, and what's so cool is that you can either do it as a survey, you can do it in writing, you can do it as a, you know, a conversation with a group, you can do it as a conversation by yourself. It's like however you want to say what you think, it's it's all there for you. So it's it's really important that everyone respond. Yeah. And that whole engagement piece, you know, something RISS has been criticised um, a lot, particularly in the UK, on the engagement piece and how do we communicate with people. But, you know, communication is two way. And we as individual surveyors of being part of something have also got to step up. There is no point moaning about something or thinking about a good idea and why hasn't anybody actioned it yet if you're not directing it where it needs to be. So I'm really excited to see what will come out of it. You know, I'm sure, it, you know, this isn't just a one-off conversation. The dialogue, I'm sure, will continue as we all work out what the next steps are. So we'll put the link to that in the um, in the show notes. I, I only... find it very annoying when people are asking me to actually step up and do something about my complaints. Yeah. <laughs> I would really rather just complain. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> they're but, not but letting I, us get away with that. Yeah, but I guess it's, you know, knowing how to, Yeah. you know, where, where to. And, you know, and, you know, my, my background is in defect and valuation com- claims and complaints. And, mm. you know, I know how people like to get it off their chest um, and part of it is creating an avenue, a route, 
uh, for communication, but recognizing that everybody is different and the modalities are different. You know, some people like to talk, some people like to write long emails about getting everything off their chest. It's quite classic to do that, (laughs) you know, but everybody's different. And so creating the, the sort of different routes and different avenues is really important. I think particularly now in you know, I come across a lot of surveyors that I've, I've spoken to on on this podcast, actually, who are dyslexic. And so for them, you know, a roundtable discussion is going to be a lot easier way to express right. what they need to oh, rather than fill out, fill out a survey. And right. so recognizing and understanding more about surveyors, more about our customers in, in that context makes it easier then to get the to get the feedback and then take the action. And it's absolutely something that we should, I know RICS does um, um, a survey of the profession every year. And I think this one's probably going to merge in some way with, with that. We've got to be re- listening really, really carefully, but also making sure that if we're part of something, if we're members of something, that we are directing our voice in in the right direction and and yes we've got this opportunity through the define your future but there's also the rics insights community which members can join it's on the the yammer platform where there's conversation and you can talk and and hear what's happening uh, as well and it's very different for people you know this digital world the age of a surveyor is a bit more mature you know but you know and not everybody use the computer but sometimes we have to change and evolve and sort of not about necessarily moving with the times, but knowing that things have changed for lots of people. And the whole global pandemic has actually changed a lot of things for a lot of people in terms of how we do things differently, yeah. you know, the whole working yeah. from home. How has the, you know, the, the COVID and pandemic and all of those things, how has that been for you over in the States? You know, scary for sure, and as as it has been around the world, at least, you know, this is where I think, you know, one of the things that came out of the Futures Report is that, you know, one of the most important trends is that people will be sort of multidisciplinary and, and trained in, in several aspects of, of their profession. And for me, I found that to be very useful in the last recession back in the mid-2000s, because I noticed that there was less investment in the tail end of the project with the design and the construction, but there was a lot more investment happening early in the process. So for people that were actually acquiring land and entitling it for development was very busy. So there was a lot of that kind of work and not so much of the later work. And it allowed me to shift my focus and pull out all of those, you know, that skill set for me in terms of, you know, managing early pieces of project. And I found that there's something similar happening now. It's maybe less on-site oriented. And um, I think, you know, there was a, a construction was not shut down here. So, you know, I think projects that were under construction kind of continued with, you know, with safe protocols on the job sites, but there wasn't a lot of new construction being launched. On the other hand, you know, anytime there's a crisis, there's a lot of litigation support <laughs> that becomes required. Mm-hmm. So I found myself dealing more with attorney situations. And I actually have a, you know, kind of a nice book of work and some regular attorneys that I work with. So that's helped. And I think it's, for me, at least as a small business owner, um, it's really been my salvation is just having, you know, multiple skills that I can bring to bear whenever I need to make myself useful. 
Yeah, I think that that's so important. As part of my work, I coach small businesses, surveyors, um, um, construction professionals. And I think some of the surveyors that have been hardest hit are those that, particularly on the residential side, do the transactional surveys. So when someone's buying a property, they'll go and do the, the survey before, before purchase. And obviously through lockdown here in the UK, when it was pretty serious, that all stopped. Right. Or you could go and do it, but hey, there's some risks of full PPE, you know, think about your age, whether you're vulnerable, right. and given that some surveyors are more mature, they were more vulnerable. And so there were a lot of surveyors who really struggled and they really, they really struggled with their work. Um, and then they weren't able to diversify right. and to do something slightly, slightly different. And a lot of the firms and one-man bands, small businesses that I worked with over that time, we really talked about, okay, if you can't go out and do your work, what else can you do? And really challenge their thinking to, do you know what? You can talk to a customer by Zoom. You right. know, you can still give ad- advice. You know, yes, it's not going to be the same. Yes, there's going to be some limitations for which you would have terms and conditions around, but you can still offer a service in a different way. There are other things that you can do to earn money, you know, through lecturing or training or, you know, lots of other ways that you can earn money. And starting to see that shift in mindset that, you know, there, that for some, some of my clients, there's some real breakthroughs to think, well, you know, that, you know, God forbid this doesn't happen again, but you could quite easily break your leg and be out for six months, you know, with right. some of the more physical jobs. But to think about how you can diversify, how you can earn money in different ways, it is, is really important. And also, you know, some of the clients that I worked with, we talked about leaving a legacy because a lot of surveyors, it's very transactional work. You know, you retire at sort of 60, 70 plus, whatever age yeah. you're at, and your business stops. Whereas, you know, really early on, you want to be thinking about, well, how can you bring more people in? How can you, you know, always, always think about your exit strategy? How can you right. sell your business on? You know, how is your PI runoff cover going to be covered, you know, once you retire? And so I found a lot of surveyors in the downtime, if you like, really started to think about their businesses in a way that they probably hadn't before, in part through necessity and in part through thinking, mm, okay, what, what's the possibility? What's the, you know, yeah. what, what's the opportunity? Yeah. Mm. My, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the, I don't know, let's say I've, you know, I've, I, I feel okay about the way I've adapted, but one of the hardest things, and I don't think I'm unique in this, is that the way that I mark, have always marketed myself is by reputation and personal relationships. People come up with the, you know, I know enough people that they say, oh, I've got this, you know, this weird complex issue. It's perfect for Anne. But if they haven't thought about me for a year because, you know, I haven't been going to lunch and, you know, yeah. lectures and, you know, cocktail parties, whatever it is, I'm just not even on their mind. So I've found that I've actually had to cross a hurdle for myself of having to feel like I, and, you know, in those situations, I'm not promoting myself. I'm just existing. Yeah. So for me to shift my personality, to pick up the phone and say, you know, Hey, do you have, you know, do you have work? Remember I exist. It's, it's not comfortable at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I come across that with a number of surveyors actually, who, 
they're used to the work just coming through panel arrangements or referrals and lots of those things can dry up but people buy from people you know they refer work to you because not just because of your expertise but because they know like and trust you Um, and you know and that's what your reputation is is all about and surveyors I find particularly in the UK and in the residential sector some will have good reputations but you know, and promote themselves, I guess, in that way. Whereas a lot don't, you know, they don't have a social media presence. They don't share their journey of really, why did you become a surveyor? What's important to you about this? You know, what can you offer a client? And it's not about getting salesy. It's about showing your true authentic self as to why you do what you do and why you're passionate about why you, why you do what you do. And we talk about sometimes, again, you know, residential surveyors in, in, in my sector sort of being forgotten in the in the house buying and selling process. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can put yourself out there. You can share your your journey. And the more that you do, the more you gain confidence in really understanding why you became a surveyor and how you help people. And, yeah. you know, that those people who've shared that, you just find different ways to connect with people. And yeah, we're all a bit zoomed out, but there are some surveyors who don't use Zoom, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, but but this is also, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep a list of all the, all the positive things that have come out of mm. this um, awful pandemic. And one of it is really the, the comfort that we have with Zoom. I mean, look at, you know, you and me here now having this great conversation, which would never happen otherwise. And it's been like this for me with a lot of people. It's just, I just think it's fantastic. It's a, you know, it's, it's really added a, a lot of pleasure to my life to be able to connect with such a variety of people all over the world. And, you know, I was invited to to speak at a, a women's panel in a few days, it's being moderated out of Mauritius. I actually have to go to a globe and figure out where that is. Um, I know it's somewhere 12 hours from here. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so how fantastic is that, that I'm going to be able to be enriched by those women's experience? It's, it's mm. great. I think one of the things for me that I've really, you know, looking at the positives that have come out of all of this for the surveying community is the sense of community. So the Surveyor Hub Facebook group that I run, you know, as we stand today has um, around about 3,000 members in the group of various flavours of surveyors, you know, uh, types of work, various um, stages of people's career from just starting out to long retired. And what I've really seen is a groundswell of support for each other. You know, not just in, I've seen this thing today what is it to I'm really struggling with something, you know, and just the support, particularly I think for students um, who are thinking, should I join the profession? Should I do this? I'm finding it hard. I can't get experience. Surveyors who have really struggled with getting their PI insurance because the market is totally changed and they can't get it. And it's that hang on in there, you can do this. And, And that's my big takeaway, I think, is just the when you bring people together, when you have that space and allow people to be vulnerable, that they will be, but also that there'll be some sparks of support and encouragement that you can't replicate and you can't recreate, you know, you just sort of have to hold that, hold that space. And so community has been a really big learning lesson for me. And as I've, as I've got to know more surveyors and, and what makes them tick. 
one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you're now the C- senior vice president. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about what it's like to go for that. And because it's quite a, a process, isn't it? It's not you just apply and then you process, become yeah. tell me Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's many kind of layers of, of filtering that, that happens. And, it, you know, you kind of have to start off with a lot of confidence that you really understand what, what RICS is, is about. And then there's this very long application that you fill out. You can either be sponsored or not be sponsored. I think there's, there's two different ways to do it. I was sponsored, so I had people write letters of recommendation for me. And you have to talk about, you know, kind of what your experience is and, you know, what you think about RICS and these different situations and that kind of thing. So you, you put all that in and there's, you know, one layer of people that are kind of looking at all of that. And then, it you know, the, the pool gets reduced again. And, and I think it gets reduced again. There's like, I don't know, a couple of rounds of that. And then it gets down to about finally, like maybe five people, five finalists. And that's where you, well, you used to go to London and, and sit in a conference room with a, with a panel of people that would ask you questions. So there'd be somebody that was, you know, human resources, there'd be the CEO, there'd be, you know, a couple of board members, there'd be the, you know, the president of the governing council. So there was kind of a range of people that had different perspectives on it. And there was somebody that does sort of a, I don't know what they call it. It's sort of like a psychological measuring uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's another whole set of exams you take. So it's quite involved. I don't want to put everybody off because it's actually sort of fun. One of the things that I find when I put myself forward in these situations is that it requires me to do a lot of personal reflection, which, you know, whoever just takes time out of their day to do that, it's, it's, you just don't. And also it requires you to assemble all of your qualifications. And when you look back over your career and you go, holy smokes, I'm amazing. <laughs> Look at all this stuff I did. Um, and you actually have to like write it down for somebody in a way that makes sense. And you realize, gee whiz, I deserve this. This is really something. And even if you don't get it, you know, at the end of the day, it's just such a great process to to put yourself through. Oh, do you know what? That, that resonates with me when I applied for my fellowship. And for me, that, that exercise really was a... Um, am I a surveyor anymore? In that my day-to-day role of how I imagined, you know, my myself as a surveyor had, had changed. I'd got more into management, more into coaching and small, more, small businesses, training, that kind of thing. Right. And, you know, so I, I approached it with a, okay, well, let's see if I can do this. And what, what kind of surveyor, if I'm a surveyor, what kind of surveyor am I? And to go through the the application, you're right, there's a lot of personal reflection when you do these things. And I started off with actually looking at things that I'm proud of in my career, things that I've done yeah. have made a difference. And when you, when you do that, this is a top tip for anybody applying for these things, when you do that, you talk about things enthusiastically and positively and the, the details, you know, come quicker because it's, you know, it's fresh in your mind and, and all of that energy really comes through. And then when you have to go and get testimonials from people and evidence, you know, yeah. and you get some of the most, you know, it's a bit nerve wracking asking somebody, 
great fellowship. Could you give me a a, a statement, you know, of support? And when you get something back from someone that just says, you are amazing and you deserve this, I think I probably burst into tears every every time I got one of these back, thinking, oh, I am a good surveyor. I know. Every time it it comes, it's like a huge surprise to me. And it's like, it's like a Christmas present or something, you know, it's like, wow, really? You think that? It is. And you put, I know I've got that as a document and on days when I've had a really crappy day and thinking, why do I do this? You know, it's the kind of document you get out and think, yes, I made a difference. Yes, I do make a difference. Yes, people believe in me. Particularly if you have, you know, those imposter syndrome days, which I do, I'm sure you do. You know, you look at it and think, yeah, you know, this is good. I'm doing good and and I've achieved Right. No. And, um, and, and, you know, especially now, yeah. like uh, after the pandemic, I think everybody's workload um, in most cases, you know, has probably shrunk a bit. And so you're starting to feel like maybe there's a lack of momentum. But when you have to collect 10, 20, 30 years worth of work and you put it all on paper, it's like, wow, that's a lot of work. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients. I have a lot of happy clients. I, you know, I've stood up for climate and diversity and ethics and you know, all the things that are important to me. And I realized that I brought those to all of those projects that I did. It's just, you know, it's collectively, it, it really feels great. Did your 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 presentation or your your pitch for that sort of final, mm-hmm. what I was on governing council uh, at the time. I can't remember. Oh, were you there? I can't remember if we we voted. I think we might have, or whether we were just watching. I, I can't remember now. But I remember you talked about diversity, and that really, really came through and and, and resonated with me. And so I'm excited to see what what happens then going in. Uh, oh yeah, in so the I was future, telling you, you know? about the process. So when you get down to the mm-hmm. five finalists that have to go through this whole, you know, another battery of of questions and interviews and testing, then it comes down to two, and then the mm. two go before governing council and each one has to deliver a you know 10 or 15 minute talk on why that's right governing yeah. council should vote for them so that's kind of the the process in a nutshell and and i think that the challenge for me this time was that because of the pandemic i wasn't there in person speaking to an audience so i practiced my speech in front of my camera for you know i must have done it a hundred times if i did it once and and so at the time that I could deliver it to council live, I felt fairly fluid, but I could get absolutely zero response from my audience, which makes it very difficult as a public speaker to have no reaction. So that was that was really a challenge, but, uh, you know, it worked out. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's actually the kind of thing a lot of APC candidates have right now in terms of giving their 10 minute presentation at their, their interview, at their interview, you know, it's a, it's a really different thing. So, uh, but well done for, for getting through. Can I ask you about the sort of the the presidential unit, if you like, because there's the president, the vice president, the senior vice president. Why is it like that? And how does that, that work because is that because you've got to be trained up to do it or how does all of that work yeah yeah, we call it the presidential team there's three of us there's a senior vice president which i am first year then there then next year i'll be executive vp and then it goes to to p and in the old days the president actually chaired the governing council meetings but what that meant was that it ended up being almost a full-time job and it really limited the kinds of people that could apply for it because who can take that much time away from their regular life to have an ambassadorial role as well as, you know, understanding, you know, all the the business of, of running council meetings and everything that happens in between. So 
what Governing Council decided a few years ago was that those rules would be separated. So we have a, a somebody that chairs Governing Council, which now is Chris Brook, and then we have the ambassadorial person, which is the president. And the reason why you would have the you know the other positions is because you you were witnessing and training to become that that chair and that ambassador. So it's a little bit different now. So what we're doing actually, mine is the is the first term where we're really rethinking what the presidential team looks like in a digital world. Mm. And how do we, if we're all ambassadors, how do we optimize our position on the team so that, you know, you sort of graduate up to maybe more frequent and more prestigious appearances. But on the other hand, if it's somebody addressing, say, a United States audience, I might be the ideal candidate to do that. So I might, say, supersede Kat Fontana as president if I'm speaking to a certain kind of American audience. So we're really looking at, you know, how do we parcel ourselves out in the way that best optimizes the RICS communications and, and the visibility of, of the, um, the presidential team as a, as a whole. Hmm. Well, and, it, and it actually, it requires us to be very team-like. In the past, you were kind of, there were discrete people that were working their way up and they didn't work as a unit. And now we're really rethinking it as a team and as a, as a unit that we, you know, we cover for each other in different situations. Mm. And I guess the president is seen as the leader of the RICS, whatever the structure and mechanisms underneath. And you know, when you put into context, you know, this is a, it's a global organization, you know, 135 or whatever it is, thousand members, you know, mm-hmm. yes, there will be a lot of structure underneath in terms of the volunteers through chapters and regional boards, world boards, and then also employees to get the operations and everything, everything running. Mm-hmm. So there are obviously key people there, but the president always seems to be, for me anyway, the, the heart and the leader and you know showing people the, the the way and you know and as we stand today it's been really inspiring to see Kath Fontana lead she's she's done an amazing yeah. job during this 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 time of of crisis and um she's a very strong communicator in my opinion and um she's you know obviously staff is backing her up with with really solid material but that role of being spokesperson is really key. And Sean, who's our, our CEO, is also a very um, strong spokesperson, but he has a, a really different perspective on RICS as sort of a business. And I think- And it, and it, is, nice, a, it, is, a, it is a business. That's the thing, hasn't it? It's got to operate, you know- It as, is as a, a business. business. That's, mm. that's right. But the president really has to represent the profession in these public appearances. And so- and on you know on behalf of the membership, but also on behalf of the organization and how it how it serves the profession. So yeah, she's she's doing a great job. She's so I'll be the fourth female. She's the third, and um, so it's not even significant anymore. And actually, next year will be Clement Lau, who's from China. So that's a real departure for the organization too, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Anne, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. Thank you ever so much for your time. Yes, thank you, Mary, and I appreciate the invitation. So, thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback, so please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.